Father, we ask your blessing on the teaching tonight. We ask your presence in this room that the Spirit would be active in teaching us all. I pray, Father, that our uh, daily life, our busyness, the things that have, have uh, filled our day today would fade into the background. I pray that the things that uh, concern us at our work, our home, our school, our family, the things that uh, are on our hearts right now, Father, would, would be put at rest in peace just for a time, if not forever. And that in the time that we have, Father, where our focus would be entirely on you and on what you're teaching us about our important future to come. And may we enter into that time as it arrives, thinking about how you prepared us in your word and all the more joyful for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going back into Ezekiel 44. We're going to finish the chapter, move into chapter 45 tonight. So I'm not going to give a lot of background. We're just going to dive right in. We know where we are. We're looking at the temple. We know when this is. It's in the kingdom. And we know Ezekiel's getting a tour. Now he's being told to record things regarding the priesthood. That's in verse 4. And Ezekiel writes, Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the house. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. The Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the statutes of the house of the Lord and concerning all its laws, and mark well the entrance of the house with all its exits of the sanctuary. All right, well, it's pausing there for a minute. I just want to put in your mind's eye where we are. You'll notice he says in, in the text he comes in by way of the north gate. One question, why doesn't he come in by way of the east gate? The door's closed, remember, from prior lessons? The east gate's been shut, not to be opened again after the Lord entered in, right? So he has to come in by one of the other gates. So he comes in from the north gate, but he has to work his way down to the east entrance of the temple. That's the inner court gate. Remember, there's two courts, two walls, two courts, gates on all of them. Right? So he moves from the northern gate, which is on the top of your page, and he walks down and then he eventually stares at the entrance to the temple, which you see by looking through the east gate, the inner east gate. Okay? And what he sees as he looks through the east gate for the inner temple courtyard, is the Shekinah glory of God back in the depths of the temple itself, in the Holy of Holies, shining out through the Holy of Holies, through the holy place, out the front door, as it were. The the word house in the text I just read is a reference to the temple. So it's coming out of the house, coming out the front door, down the steps, it's shining out into the inner court, and he's seeing it from the outside of the inner court through the gate. That's how far he can see in and how he can see the glory. And it makes him fall on his face. You notice, it doesn't matter how close you get to it. He's a distance away, if you notice the dimensions on your page. right? He's hundreds of feet away. He's like looking at it from the other end of a football field. He catches a glimpse of it, and he's on his face again. It just shows you the magnitude of God's glory in relationship to his creation. And another reason why Jesus can't go walking around the world, if he did, everybody would be flat on their face. Right? So... He can't even stand in the presence. All right, now, then from there he hears the voice of the Lord speaking. And what he tells him is that you're to keep track of everything you've seen, heard, and otherwise during your tour of this temple. Now, you might have thought that would have been instruction he gets at the very outset of his tour. And he got something of the, of the same thing when he did start the tour. But what God is reminding him of now is that everything he's seeing is not just for his own sake. He is to record it. He is to make sure that everyone else can benefit from it as well. In fact, the purpose of everything that God reveals through his prophets that we have recorded in the Word of God has been revealed so that we would know it. Which, by the way, if I wanted to get on a soapbox, and I won't, it would argue then that we should be learning it all. 
right? That we should be studying it all. That there should be no aspect, no, no corner of the Bible that we haven't spent time in trying to understand before we die. Because it was all revealed for us to know it. Not for just some people. Not the guys that go to seminary. All of us, right? And the irony is the guys that go to seminary don't learn most of it. So, anyway... I did get on my soapbox there for a minute, didn't I? Anyway, beyond the temple itself, the Lord also has a message for the people of Israel regarding how they have dealt with the previous temple. And he uses this moment to just mention that. So in a sense, we've moved out of the future and popped back into the present time of Ezekiel's day. And God is speaking to the Israel of that day just for a moment. That's in verse 6. He says, You shall say to the rebellious ones, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Enough of all your abominations, O house of Israel. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to profane it, even my house, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, for they made my covenant void. This in addition to all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things yourselves, but you have set foreigners to keep charge of my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel, shall enter my sanctuary. So in Ezekiel's day, speaking of the time of of when Ezekiel lived, and apparently in generations prior to that, the people of Israel had committed uh, just uncountable abominations. The prior chapters in this book are a record of many of those things. We covered that, so we're not going to go back through it again. But now what the Lord says is, in contrast to the glory of the kingdom temple, he says, you are just continuing in abominations in my existing temple back in that day, the one that was about to be destroyed or had been destroyed. And he says to the people of Israel, you're no longer going to go on with your abominations. Now, it's a bit of irony in that because by the time this is being written, the temple's gone, right? This is after it's been destroyed. But the fact that he says you're no longer going to do it is a way of saying, the next time you get a temple, you won't make these mistakes again, all right? And as an example of the things they did, he says, the people of Israel used to bring foreigners who were uncircumcised in heart and spirit or heart and flesh into the temple. Now, to be uncircumcised in the flesh means to be Gentile, right? To put it simply. And in such, if you're uncircumcised in your body as a man, what that would mean is that you're not either Jewish or you're not in the covenant. You're an apostate. But in either event, you're not a party to the covenants of Israel in that day, if you were not circumcised. That was the sign of participating in both covenants. It was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, but it was also a command of the Mosaic covenant. So you needed to be circumcised to be in good standing as a citizen of Israel, speaking to the men, of course. Um, But to be uncircumcised in the spirit or in the heart, as he says here, means to be unbelieving, to not have the spirit of God giving you new spiritual life. So if a Jew is allowing someone who is uncircumcised in both respects to be in the temple, what it's saying is he's allowing unbelieving Gentiles to work in the temple, to enter a place that is reserved exclusively for Jews, and in other cases exclusively for priests. So the Mosaic Covenant established all of these rites and rituals with the temple for the sake of Israel alone, and Gentiles have no part in that covenant. By the way, if anyone would ever argue with you that Gentiles are somehow under the covenant given to Moses, here's one of the places you can go to them and say, look, God is upset that Gentiles were participating in the covenant. It was not to be this way. Far from us being under the covenant of Moses, we were excluded from it. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians, right? But the point is you can show that here as well. So, The nation of Israel had allowed Gentiles to defile the temple. And what's more, the Lord says Gentiles were even allowed to eat 
of the sacred food that was reserved for the priests, the food that had been sacrificed, animals that had been sacrificed, that, that meat and, and fat was to be reserved for the priests. And if that wasn't bad enough, Israel allowed foreigners to officiate in the temple as if they were priests. Now we know in the book of Joshua that after the people entered the land, Joshua allowed the Gibeonites, who were uh, Canaanites, to serve at the altar uh, when he set up altars as water carriers. You can read that in Joshua chapter 9. So apparently what Joshua did set a precedent of sorts that continued on afterward until you get to the point where Gentiles are serving in the tabernacle or maybe in the temple at least. So the Lord now says in verse 9 that in the kingdom, ain't going to happen, my words, that there will be no natural man who is uncircumcised in the flesh and spirit who enters the sanctuary. Now, we do know from elsewhere, like in Zechariah, for example, that in the kingdom, nations, Gentiles, will stream, it says, to the mountain, the holy mountain of of Zion, so that they might participate in worship of, of the God of Israel and to celebrate feast days and the like. Nevertheless, apparently, unbelieving Gentiles will not be allowed to enter the temple grounds. So that's not just the temple proper. Of course, no one enters there. But not even the outer wall, not even the holy ground that surrounds the whole thing. So depending on how you you go with the measurements from the earlier chapter, it could be a whole mile square. So that whole mile square is prohibited for anyone who's an unbelieving Gentile. We're going to come back to that later in the study tonight. Um, now, keep in mind, of course, that the Lord knows the hearts of everyone, so in that day, it won't be a problem to enforce this rule. You know, if you think about it today, if we said only believers could come through that door, all right, well, how would I make sure that? That's not a good rule anyway, but my point is, if we had such a rule, we couldn't enforce it. I mean, you don't carry a card, you know. It, it, there's no way to know. So, in that day, however, God will know, and so it will be perfectly enforced, and believers will not reach within those boundaries. All right, hold that thought. We come back to that later. And then, turning to the Levitical priests, the Lord now begins to give some of the rules for who the priests are, what they do. But these rules are different than the rules that have been previously followed under the Mosaic Law. We'll start, we'll just do them in chunks here. Let's go to verse 10. It says, But the Levites, who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house, They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifices for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord God, that they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity, and they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy, but they will bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the house, of all its service, and of all that shall be done in it. Well, what Lord is saying is this. The Levites stood by idly when Israel went astray in the centuries prior. Uh, and this goes back to some of the things we studied in the book already, of the various evil kings that came and went, and of all the abominations that they permitted within the temple, everything we've heard already, abominations of prostitution and idol worship and all the rest. Okay? Well, if you remember, the priests were still there. They were still doing their bit to keep the law of Moses to some degree, kind of going about their world, even as all this other stuff was going on around them in the very same place that they're supposed to be officiating. You remember back in Ezekiel chapter 8, for example, in Ezekiel 8.16, it says, Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. This is a moment in which God gave Ezekiel a vision of what was going on back in Jerusalem while Ezekiel was in Babylon 
having been taken into captivity. God sort of said, let me show you what's going on back at home. And in the vision in chapter 8, he heard this. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. The Lord said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? For behold, they are putting the twig to their nose, and therefore I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. Though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. Back in chapter 8, what we learned was you have a temple. This is the temple of that day, obviously. And you have 25 guys standing between the threshold and the altar. Now, if you notice, that the design of the temple hasn't fundamentally changed. So the picture you have now will show there's an altar that sits out in the middle of the inner courtyard, right? That's where the sacrifices take place. Now, between that place and the stairs, the threshold of the temple itself is a gap of some distance. Uh, quick question for anyone who remembers that chapter. Who is permitted to stand in that area? between the the altar and the threshold of the temple. Nobody remembers. Who? The priests. Only the priests can go there. Only the priests can do that under the Mosaic Law. Again, this is back in the day of, of Ezekiel's temple, right? So if you have 25 guys standing in that space, what does that mean that they are? They're priests. And there's 25 of them because at any given time, throughout the course of a year, how many men were serving as priests in the temple? That's not 25. How many were serving? How many, David set up an order of the priesthood such that there would be so many men within the priesthood serving at any given time. They served twice a year, and they had a rotating schedule, and at any given time, 24 of them were, at, were working at the temple. Why is there 25? Well, who's the other guy? The high priest. So you have the high priest and all the other priests that are on duty, and they're all doing what? They're all with their backs to the temple, because the door of the temple is on which side? The east side, so if you put the door to your back, which way are you facing? East. It's on the east side. You're facing the way the door is facing. The door is behind you, you're looking east, the door faces east. And what are they worshiping? The rising sun. These are guys about to go to do the business of the temple, and they start their day by worshiping the sun. So because of their unfaithfulness, as ministers to God in that day, he says the Levitical priesthood will no longer officiate over the duties of priesthood in the temple of the kingdom. They basically stood by and turned a blind eye. He he uses the phrase, they put the twig to the nose. It's an ancient euphemism for what we use a middle finger to do. So it was a way of saying to God, blank you. Daring God to do something about what they were doing in his house. That's literally what the Lord says to them. And so he says to them, well, you know what? I'm going to get the last word about this. And when you cry to me because of what's coming, I'm not even going to listen to you. Right? So that's the judgment that Nebuchadnezzar eventually brought. But at this stage in the book, he was explaining to, Nebuch- to Ezekiel all the things that were happening, which were going to be responsible for the judgment. Now what you're hearing is there is a longer-lasting consequence for the Levitical priesthood. Notice in verse 13, the Lord says, They shall never come near him. Now that is different than under the Mosaic Law. All right, Under the Mosaic Law, the offerer who brings their sacrifice to the temple was responsible for killing their own animal, and then the priest would take it from there. So you had to, if you brought a lamb for your sacrifice, you, you killed the lamb right there in the temple. The man did. Women weren't allowed at that point. It was only the men. 
but they would slit the throat of the animal, and then the priesthood picked it up from that point. Then the priest would take the animal and prepare it for burning and, and take the blood and sprinkle it and then take the blood into the holy place. and do, you know, They had all that part of the process. That's why you couldn't go past the altar. Priests were on the other side of the altar going into the temple. The worshiper stayed on this side of the altar and handed off the animal after they killed it. All right. In the kingdom, though, what we just read says that priests will no longer have that job. They will have oversight of the house, the gates. They're going to be the caretakers, the janitors. They get the key, they open it at night, they close it. They're, they're going to have a job. Um, they will, but notice what he also says they will do. They will slaughter the animals. And they will minister to the people who come to worship there. They will be, the, you know, they will be a, like, a, like a pastor to the people who come there. But you could say, in a sense, now they're going to do the dirty work. Ministering in those ways. So who's going to be responsible to take it from there? Well, that's a new, one particular family of priests now have that duty. And it starts in verse 15. He says, But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. So the Levitical priests, remember, priesthood starts under Levi, the, Le- the Levites, and then under Levi, the, the sons of Aaron. And then after that, you get uh, sons of Aaron, over time leads you down to one particular son of Zadok. So Zadok is one family line out of one family line out of all of the Levitical priests. He is known as the, man, the high priest who remained loyal to David, back when David was contending with Saul's house and, and his family line for the control of the, of the throne after Saul's death. Remember, there's a point in that story where David flees from Absalom, who is trying to hold on to the throne, trying to be the inherit, inherit the throne from Saul. And, as that, and Absalom is successful initially in getting the, the people of Israel, particularly those in Jerusalem, to rally behind his cause against David. This is after David's been anointed, long after David was anointed by, by Samuel. And there's a moment in which David is having to escape Jerusalem because he's, he's not got the strength to withstand uh, Absalom's uh, press to get the, the throne. And the people are on Absalom's side, so David has no choice but to flee for a time. And we read this in 2 Samuel 15, 23. It says, While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook of Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. A quick geography lesson. Jerusalem sits on a mountain. That mountain is a series of peaks and valleys. And the temple, what we think of today as the old city of Jerusalem, where the city of David was, sits on a particular mountain range called Moriah, Mount Moriah. And on the east side is a very steep valley called the Kidron Valley. And if you go down that Kidron Valley and come up the other side, you're on the Mount of Olives. Okay? He just crossed, it says, the brook of Kidron, which was in the, the little water that went down the middle of the... Kidron Valley. So he just exited the city on the east side, went down across the brook, went up to the Mount of Olives. He's escaping. And it says all the people were weeping to watch him leave, those who were his supporters. Verse 24, Now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God. And Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. The king, this is David, said to Zadok, Return the Ark of God to the city If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. All right, so what Zadok did was bring out the ark and say, look, I'm on your side. I'm bringing this with you. 
Wherever you go, I should go. Uh, And because of his faithfulness, the Lord is now saying Zadok and his sons will be the only priests who have the authority to do what a priest should do in the case of the temple, right? By the way, there's a great picture in that story uh, of our time now in the church in that David's departure from Jerusalem pictures Jesus being rejected by his own people when he comes to give them the throne and when he comes to be on the throne for the first time. Because of his rejection, Jesus departs the city, as did David. And David's command to the priests to remain behind with the ark, not come with me, but stay here, he says. It pictures Christ telling the church that we will remain behind on earth for a time and the the glory of the Lord dwells in us. We are, like the ark was, the dwelling place of God's glory for a time in Christ's absence. While the king is not here, you stay back there, right? And just as David said the ark should remain until he returns, so does the church remain until Christ returns. And just as Zadok's faithfulness to give uh, to David in that moment gave him the right to minister to God in the kingdom. Likewise, our faithfulness to serve Christ in his absence gives us opportunity to reign in the kingdom, which is what we studied last week, if you remember. All right, let's finish the chapter. We look at the dress now and the conduct of the priest. Just a few interesting things here, and then we move on. Verse 17, It shall be that when they enter at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments, and wool shall not be on them while they are ministering in the gates of the inner court and in the house. Linen turbans shall be on their heads, and linen undergarments shall be on their loins, and they shall not gird themselves with anything which makes them sweat. And those who live in San Antonio said, Amen. (laughs) When they go out into the outer court, into the outer court to the people, they shall put off their garments in which they have been ministering, and lay them in the holy chambers, and then they shall put on other garments, so that they will not transmit holiness to the people with their garments. I'll start with the dress here. It says everything that the priests of Zadok wear has to be linen, not wool. And there's some theory for this, and I don't, you know, it's a little speculative, but it, it does make some sense. First of all, linen is a product of plants, whereas wool is a product of animals. And you could say that because God used animal skins to cover the very first sin of Adam and woman, that it forevermore represents a covering of sin in that respect. Linen, on the other hand, is always the picture Scripture uses for purity. We're dressed in white linen as a sign or as a symbol of our being clothed in Christ's righteousness. That's the way those two symbols are often used. So animal skins come with the sense of an atoning covering of sin, whereas linen comes with the picture of righteousness appropriated by Christ or from Christ to us. And so it would make sense that perhaps he wants his priests who minister to him to be seen as having been clothed in righteousness, not needing atonement, not needing covering. That's one theory, anyway. Then you have, but the simpler theory says, well, because you sweat in wool. And it says you can't sweat. Because when you sweat, literally, that made somebody unclean for the job of priest. So it could just be as simple as, I want you light and comfortable. Okay. The more interesting and the more more important piece of all this is, Priests can't take their garments out of the temple. Now, if you remember back to when we had the visuals of the temple, there was that one visual where you have the temple proper in the inner court, but on either side were those tall buildings, three-story buildings, that priests were in on the sides. Remember, that was one of the, that was the way you could enter in. And that's where the priestly quarters were. Well, that's where they're going to go in. It's like their locker room, I said back then. And that's exactly what they are. They're locker rooms. You go in there, you take your garments off, you stick them in the locker, lock it, go off, you know, pick up your gym bag and say, I'll see you tomorrow, Harry. And you walk out the door. And they did their job that way. I mean, it's very much probably like that. 
The Lord says he doesn't want them to walk out. Remember, if they walk through that long chamber that was on either side of the temple where they, where they found their quarters, if they walked out, where do they end up? Remember, it was an exit through and out into the outer court from which then they could go outside entirely. Well, priests would only be the ones to go in those buildings. So if you walked out that building into the outer court, dressed like everybody else, you just blend in. At that point, you're just another person in the outer court. The Lord says that's how he wants it to be. He doesn't want these guys to walk out in the robes, the garments that they were wearing when they walked into the holy place and they saw the glory of God. Now, remember what it did to Ezekiel, right? He's falling on his face. They're in some way able to minister in in those circumstances without losing composure. But when they come out of that place, they change their clothing. Now, the Lord says in verse 19, he does not want the priest to transmit their holiness to the people. The word transmit is not found in the original Hebrew. In fact, the Septuagint says it this way, so that they shall not sanctify the people. All right? So by that, what you're, what you're hearing there is this. God does not want to expose the common man outside the temple to what the priests had experienced as they entered into the presence of God. And what that suggests is that perhaps the clothing will radiate as Moses' face did when he entered into the presence of God in the tent of meeting in the desert. If that's true, then here's what that's saying, that God does not want those who cannot enter in to see the effect that it has on those who did. And principally, then, that would refer to the unbeliever. Remember, we said unbelievers can't enter into this place. So an unbeliever now will not see the glory of God, nor will they see anything reflective of the glory of God on those who did see the glory of God, if that's indeed what this means, and I believe it does. Now, from that detail, what you're beginning to see is the requirement for faith in the kingdom, just as it is today, just as it has always been. And by that I mean this. Students of the Bible naturally start to wonder as you get into the topic of the kingdom and some of these details, you start to wonder, how could it be that in that world to come, You're going to have a world ruled by Christ and all that comes with it, and yet you're still going to have unbelievers. Now, you might understand how unbelievers start. I mean, we get the whole point that natural people have babies and babies are unbelieving when they're born, and okay, we get that. But the problem is, why would such a person who is born into that world as an unbeliever, like all people are born as unbelievers, how do they stay that way? That's the question, right? How does that person, exposed to this world that we're hearing about, how do they not look at it and go, clearly Jesus is real, clearly this is all true, how could I not believe it? Well, most assume things that are not true about that world, which is why they have that expectation that everyone should just naturally catch on. Well, we already addressed some of these, like, for example, the common misconception that you're going to see Jesus. That's one of the first ones that people have to get reoriented on, right? If you're never going to see him, that is, we just learned, not only will you not see him, you won't see his glory, you won't even be in the room, you won't even be in the court, you won't even be anywhere near it, ever, if you're unbelieving. All right, so you're never going to see anything. There aren't going to be pictures of him. It's not like there's going to be a TV screen that's, you know, like a webcam always focused on the Shekinah glory. You can just see it at 20... I mean, that's just silliness, right? We're not going to have any visual proof of what's going on in that giant building up there on the top of that giant mountain that no one is allowed to go near. Okay? So so that's one thing you have to deal with. That takes that out of the way. What about, well, supernatural displays? There's going to be all kinds of supernatural stuff happening. Well, no. Has anything we've read talked about, you know, people levitating and the Red Sea getting parted every day at noon? I mean... Right? There's no supernatural displays in the kingdom. None that we've heard of. None whatsoever. 
You're not walking through walls. You're not flying. You're just normal people without sin. Right? Uh, the, the way the life of the world will work. You'll have people in government. You'll have rule. You'll have authority. You'll have order. You'll have regular life. Now, yeah, there's some things about that regular life that's different than what we know. But keep in mind, we're talking about people who've been born into that world. They don't have our world as their comparison. They only know what they know, which is what they've been experienced from birth, which is just what they'll take for granted. It's the world they've been born into. It's how the world works. None of that in and of itself would tell you anything about God or, or convince you concerning these things, would it? And then you have this fact of glorified people living among unglorified people. That is, we'll be there having been resurrected into a body that never dies. They'll have been born into that world, into a body of sin that still dies. And then that becomes a point for some to say, well, clearly when they see us and they talk to us and they see how we don't die and they do die, I mean, that's going to make them want to ask some questions, right? Surely that would be enough to get them to think about faith. But if you think about all of these things for a little while, including that last point, you come to realize these things are not only not true in the kingdom, they are not going to lead anyone to salvation. Hebrews says this in 11.1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Paul adds in Romans 8.24, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? In other words, what the Bible says is that faith is an expression, listen to this definition, it's, a, it's an expression of hope. Faith is an expression of hope because it accepts something as true before it can be seen or experienced in reality. So once something can be seen, then at that point, accepting the truth of it is no longer a matter of faith. It, it's self-evident at that point. right? And therefore, it does not gain you anything. Because God himself gains no glory when we acknowledge the obvious. There's no glory to be found in acknowledging the obvious. So God's plan of salvation depends on faith. That is, entrusting in promises made by God, found in his word, concerning things yet to come. That's how the Bible defines faith. So you place your faith in something that cannot be seen. In our case, it's in Christ's atoning death. You didn't see it. You weren't there. You can't prove it happened, except that it's written in the Bible. Right? And you also have a hope in that. Your hope is in the future resurrection that is yours to share because he did it first. You get to share in that. Right? So there's a, a faith in an atoning act that has as its consequence a future glory. I have a hope in that. So I, I have faith in something I can't see from the past, and I have a hope in something that is yet to come and unprovable in all cases. Right? God's word has made promises to us concerning those things, and we have our faith in accepting things that cannot be seen, and that's why Paul says it is a hope. All right. Now, imagine if Jesus were visible in his glorified form in that future world, in the kingdom. Let's say he just sits up on a big pole glowing like a light all day long, walking around having Starbucks with you at the corner, whatever you want to imagine. Imagine that's happening. They would certainly acknowledge him. Yes, that's Jesus. I see him every day. He comes for coffee. Right? Acknowledging him at that point is no problem. But that acknowledgement would not be based on faith. Right? It would be merely self-evident truth. There's Jesus. Yep, I can see him. 
It doesn't take any brilliance, doesn't take any faith, doesn't take any hope. It's just acknowledging something that is absolutely self-evident. And acknowledging Jesus under those circumstances would not result in salvation. Do you understand? You'd have the whole world saying that's Jesus and no one could be saved because no one would have opportunity to express faith. You follow what I'm saying? And let me give you the proof of that. Paul gives us proof of that in Philippians. In Philippians 2.9, he says this, For this reason also God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You've all heard this, right? Most of us have heard this, right? But did you notice? He says, at the final judgment, which is the moment he's referencing, all humanity from all history will come to an understanding that the truth is Jesus is Lord. And in that moment, Paul says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that truth. But did you notice where the people are when they're making this confession? He mentions humanity existing in three different places. He says, those who are above the earth, and we know where that is, right? And those who are on the earth. And then, importantly, did you notice he said, those who are below the earth. Now, obviously, those who are below the earth refers to souls who are enduring eternal judgment. Now, notice, though, Paul says they too will confess Jesus as Lord, and yet they do so remaining in judgment. Despite their confession, they are still under the earth. What does that tell you? The point is, their confession at that point is simply an acknowledgement of self-evident truth. No faith will be required. They're going to be standing before their judge, knowing him to be who he said he is. That point, faith is not doing anything for them because it's not even required. They've passed the point at which faith was an option or an opportunity. They've reached the point in which Christ has made himself plainly known. But at that point, you can't be saved by self-evident truth. Does that, you understand? What faith means means something very specific. And so, if we had a kingdom in which Christ was that evident, though it makes sense to us in a human sense, oh, well, then everyone would just know he's Jesus and we're all good. But you deny the very process by which God is obtaining glory for himself, which is that we trust in him apart from ourselves, apart from what is self-evident, what can demonstrate itself to us self-evidently. We put our faith in him as a matter of trust, as a matter of faith, in his word. That's why Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Not by sight. Not by experience. And so, since unbelief remains on the earth, and since in God's mercy, he still intends to offer salvation to those of unbelief, to some degree, because that's still in his plan, he has no choice but to remain out of sight, so that faith is still an option for those in that day. And if faith is required, then the truth of Christ will not be self-evident, at least not in the sense that it nullifies faith. And for that one reason, Jesus is not roaming the earth. And for the same reason, you don't have priests walking out glowing. They come out of the room looking normal, so that there is, again, a faith expectation. So accepting the testimony that says Jesus is Lord, He made this world, He died in a previous age to save you from your sins, He now rules in this age, He's in that building, and all the other stories that come with that, right? All the testimony around that from Scripture. Uh, all of that will still be put before men and women in that age who by their, by their unbelief will have to accept it by faith or not receive salvation as a result. And then let's deal with that last issue I raised of our appearance. 
Because there's a consequential conclusion that we have to make about ourselves knowing the principle that I just outlined. And that consequential conclusion is our appearance cannot vary dramatically from that of natural human beings. Think about it. The ones we're talking about who are unbelieving, where did they all come from again? They're just the descendants of people like you and I right now. They're just going to be normal human beings. Remember, their family, their parents, the the ones who brought them into the kingdom were the ones who came out of this world just like we are now. They just came in believing. And then they had babies, and they had babies, and babies, and babies. And down the road, you're still talking about genetically the same group of people. Two arms, two legs, head, eyes, looks just like us. Right? If we're not to have a way for them to see God in a way that nullifies faith, we can't be in the world looking like aliens. Because it raises the question, why are you so different? It takes faith out of the equation again. So the consequential conclusion I think you have to draw from all of this is that our appearance remains essentially the same. Now, I'm, I'm going to have fewer wrinkles. We might be a little thinner. Uh, you know, you might look a little nicer, I guess. But I, I have, it's my contention that we will look virtually the same. We may, not, we may even have a very similar appearance so that you can recognize one another. There's no fundamental reason to expect that God has to remake us in some way that changes all the rules. In fact, if he started with Adam in the way that he did, why would you assume he's going to start something entirely different in the next world? It makes more sense that he, he starts with what he wanted and he keeps what he wants. In any event, we do know that we can't be so fundamentally different that faith is nullified. All right? Perhaps most amazing of all of this. You, this shows you what my mind does when I sit down and I start thinking about these things. It just keeps going and going and going. This is where I went next. Your sinless nature will not make you radically different. Now, it'll feel radically different to be sinless, but it will not make you a radically different human being. You won't be like Spock. You won't be emotionless. Nor will you be you know, like some robotic genius or... You're just going to be like you are now. You're going to have a sense of humor. You're going to have a personality. You're going to have uh, styles of thinking and talking. And you're going to be. But what you won't do is cross that line into an unloving act. Now you say, well, that's a big difference. Yes, it is. But think about this. We know that we will be living side by side with the natural man, with the one who is going to die, the one who still has sin. And yet, our sinlessness will not challenge their understanding of God. It will not cause them to think about God so differently that it nullifies faith, right? It won't make a point to them. Not in a way that interferes with faith. They aren't going to look at you or me and be so amazed at our difference by being sinless that it puts them on their knees and believing in Jesus. That's not the effect of it. Perhaps they will recognize you as being especially kind or upright compared to other people, perhaps. Or maybe they're just going to think you're weird. Or maybe they're just going to resent your perfection. I deal with that all the time. It's hard. What's that? Your wife. Yeah, my wife's back there. It's like, we'll talk later, honey. Um, but here's one thing we do know for sure. Our sinless nature cannot nullify faith, right? And here's your proof. What do you think my best proof is going to be of this? That, that you can be sinless and no one notices. Jesus. Right? Remember, if you don't know the answer to the Bible question, 90% of the time is Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life, and yet not even his own earthly brothers were moved by what they saw such that they believed his claims. Right? They didn't believe until after he was resurrected. So if a sinless Jesus can live side by side with unbelievers without them noticing, we can do the same thing. 
So it's not to say that it's not a big change for us. It's just to say that it doesn't turn you into something otherworldly. And in that, I think there's actually a lot of reassurance for this. Because the more you consider all these issues, the more reason you have to look forward to the kingdom life, it's going to be like life is now, but just better. You know, for those who've kind of worried that it's going to have some weird quality to it that makes you wish back for this world, eh, it's going to be this world plus. Right? It's going to be the consequences of removing sin, but with all the benefits of the world that God designed for us, right? And it's going to be a life of fulfillment in place of disappointment, and a life with meaning instead of one that sometimes probably seems senseless. It it will have a rhythm and a stability to it that eliminates fear and worry. Uh, It's a life where the prospect of growing old and dying are gone, and the consequences of sin are not a worry anymore. And so your days are just filled with work you enjoy, pastimes that that don't hurt you or others, possessions that never fade away. And for the unbeliever, the same can be true so long as they do not sin, and then at some point if they become a believer before they reach the age of 100. So it's just it's a real life, for lack of a better way to say it. And it has to be that way because it will be indistinguishable from the life of an unbeliever who lives among you. In the sense that they won't see you as some superhuman like a Marvel comic. You're just another person on the earth. And you might say, look, I never, I never die. And they'll look at you and go, well, that's pretty self-centered of you. No, I'm telling you, I'm never going to die. You see, when you're talking to someone who's never died, they could say the same thing. I've never died either. Oh, but you're going to die. Well, we all die. I don't. Oh, yeah, right. Here we go again. Let's just see who dies first, right? I mean, how do you prove that? Well, you know, I'm 573 years old. Oh, yeah, sure you are. You see the problem? Faith, faith. There is not going to be a way that you can just point to something and say, here's the proof. Not then, just like not now, right? In the midst of that near-perfect world, unbelievers are going to be told that unless they believe in Christ... They will not be able to continue in the bliss of the world that they know. And though we may assume that such a great world with all that I've described might make faith easier, here's the last point I'll make on this, and then we'll move on. Do you realize the reality will be exactly the opposite? Faith will be harder. Think about it. When the world is experiencing such bliss, faith is a harder argument. And you see that even today. I talk to people who minister in certain parts of the world uh, that uh, are particularly affluent and have very little crises one of the examples I have is a friend who lives in Costa Rica. And when I talk to him about ministry in Costa Rica, he's always talking about how hard it is. He says, there's food on the trees. People don't even have to worry about where they get their food from. There's just, it's a, it's a put of life. It's everything is easy and no one has any stress. So it seems. And consequentially, you can't go into them and say, you really need to worry about your future. And here's this, here's this need that you have. Eh, that's all right. You know, mañana, everything's fine. And so they have this very easygoing cultural view. But you can also go to Western Europe and find that same attitude among Scandinavians who have high standards of living and lots of wealth and a very sterile lifestyle when it comes to things like uh, you know, the troubles of life that we see, seem to have. And same problem. So when people are comfortable in their circumstances, they find very little reason to change. Especially not when the change is something as significant as repenting of their present way of life so they can embrace an entirely new one with Jesus. That's just, that's why you have, you know, no atheist in a foxhole kind of logic. When life's tough, people are more open to why and how do I change and so on. All right. Moving back to the priests. We have a series of rules now for proper conduct which are going to raise a favorite dilemma for us here that's come up in in weeks past and now it's really going to be a dilemma. You'll see what I mean. First of all, verse 20. The harder part comes in a a little while, not just yet, but you'll see it. 
Verse 20, he says, Also, they shall not shave their heads, yet they shall not let their locks grow long. They shall only trim the hair of their heads. Nor shall any of the priests drink wine when they enter the inner court. And they shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but shall take virgins from the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow who is the widow of a priest. Moreover, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In a dispute, they shall take their stand to judge. They shall judge it according to my ordinances. They shall also keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed feasts, and sanctify my Sabbaths. All right, let's start at the top there. He says, a, a priest can't drink on the job, can't look like a hippie, and has to marry a respectable woman. A virgin. That reference to marrying, though, raises a huge red flag, uh, because what it suggests, of course, is that these are natural men. Which brings us back to the question of whether or not all Israel is glorified. So earlier I addressed this question uh, at an earlier point in the study by saying that Scripture indicates two things about the nature of the people of Israel in this day that appear to contradict. Now, we know the Bible isn't contradicting itself, but it appears that way because of our lack of understanding. On the one hand, you have the Bible saying that Israel will all know the Lord and all will obey Him perfectly. You find that in several places. I'll just remind you of Jeremiah 31. Starting in 31.31, which we all know, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. That's just one example. There's others in which we read that said, Israel will keep the commandments and keep the statutes and the ordinances without fail. They will all keep them, the Bible says elsewhere. Uh, perfect knowledge of God. Notice he says they're not going to be teaching each other to know the Lord. Perfect obedience to the law is, is uh, also part of what we hear. And yet here we hear the Lord saying that there's a rule for who they marry. And if they're marrying, that means that according to what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty, he says those who are glorified will be like the angels, not marrying or given into marriage. So if they're glorified, there wouldn't be a need to tell them who they could marry. If they're being married and given into marriage, then they're not glorified, they're natural. But if they're natural, how is it that they can say that they keep the law perfectly and that they all know the Lord? Furthermore, you notice you have a reference to the descendants of the priests of Zadok um, who are judging over others and settling disputes over others. Well, here again, uh, in verse 23, they have to explain to Israel the difference between what is holy and profane. I mean, that's pretty basic kinds of teaching, right? Discerning between clean and unclean, good and wrong, basically. Um, verse 24, we're told the priests judge over the disputes. Look, sinless people, glorified people, don't need you to judge over their disputes or to uh, keep them from uh, fighting with each other, right? Or to even be taught what's right and what's wrong. These are all things characteristic of unglorified Natural people, marrying, needing to be taught, needing to be shown what's right, okay? And yet, how do you square that up with the other prophecies that say, all Israel will know me, no one will tell their brother to know me? Uh, This is a difficult concept. It somehow must be true that Israel fully knows and obeys the Lord in the kingdom, and yet, at the same time, they have priests who need wives, judgment, and instruction, or priests that need to give judgment and instruction. Now, at the very least, we know that the Old Testament saints who are in this kingdom have to be glorified because they're dead. 
Right? Anyone who's dead who shows up has to be resurrected. So at least some of them will have to be glorified. Um, but now the prospect seems to be out there that there's going to be natural Jews who don't come into the kingdom glorified, but are reproducing, or so it would seem. It gets worse. Uh, verse 25. They shall not go to a dead person to defile themselves, however, for father, for mother, for son, for daughter, for brother, or for a sister who's not had a husband, they may defile themselves. After he is cleansed, seven days shall elapse for him. On the day that he goes into the sanctuary, into the inner court to minister to the sanctuary, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. And it shall be with regard to an inheritance for them that I am their inheritance, and you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. The first of all the first fruits of every kind, and every contribution of every kind, from all your contributions, shall be for the priests. You shall also give to the priests the first of your dough to cause a blessing to rest on your house. The priest shall not eat any bird or beast that has died a natural death or has been torn to pieces. All right, well, verse 25. The Lord says priests can't go visit, visit a dead body unless that dead body is part of their family. Well, here again, only natural, and now it gets worse, only natural unsaved people die. Remember? Only the natural that who never get saved. So now we have priests who have relatives who are unsaved in Israel. And yet all Israel will know me. I mean, we definitely have an issue here that can't be resolved. And have to, you know, the, the fact that it has a resolution that's escaping us just means that there's still more study to be done. But it does show you the, conf- the, the conflict here, the tension that's in this, and we don't understand it. I don't understand it. Maybe you can explain it to me. Um, Notice also, verse 27, the priest who does have contact with a dead body offers his sin offering before he can return to officiating in the temple. That's a stunning statement because it means the priest has sin. It could be referring to the ritual uncleanliness of having visited a body. But here again, that makes the priest a natural-born person, or so it would seem. Uh, Again, a gap in our understanding. Finally, and then back to the point of what they're doing here, he says the Levitical priest's Um, of the Mosaic Law back in the time of Moses, those priests depended upon the gifts that came into the temple as their means of supply. They had no other inheritance in the land except the temple, and they were fed by what came into the temple. So later in the book, uh, in this book, you're going to study how the allotments of land go to the various tribes, including where, where the priests get their allotment. But right now you're seeing this fundamental principle that's common throughout the Scripture. It's common in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, and now you're seeing it's also in the kingdom period. And that principle is, those who minister to God's people should expect their supply from God's people. According to Leviticus, the priests could not eat meat unless it was the meat sacrificed at the temple. They couldn't eat meat that is killed or died naturally in any other way. The only way they got meat was what was given to them in the temple. If they ran out of meat at the temple, they couldn't eat meat. Uh, In the New Testament, you see that principle applied as Paul explains it, for what it's worth, for anyone who just wants a reminder. In 1 Corinthians 9.13, he says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, referring to the priests, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Then he makes a New Testament application. He says, So also, the Lord directs that those who proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. That was a, a teaching of Scripture that I found very convicting until I quit my job. It was the idea that, you know, bivocational ministry has a place to a degree, but there is this biblical principle that the Lord directs those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. 
And the principle is actually to the benefit of the body. The idea is that you free someone's time up so that their time is devoted wholly to the needs of serving the body with their spiritual gift. It doesn't help them or you to have them working half-time doing something else that's not ministerial. It's just cut down their service to the body. And anybody that's being served at any size, frankly, has enough wherewithal to help the one person who's serving them in ministry or the three or the, you know, whatever this, the needs are, if it's, if it's handled right. That's the principle. So you have the principle in the Old Testament where the priests were dependent on the people who worshipped to bring their needs to the temple. You have the New Testament principle, which I just articulated, and you have it in the kingdom, such that the priests in the temple receive the first fruits of the people of Israel as their payment. And as he repeats here, they also can't eat meat except that which is provided at the temple. And as we learn later, they're actually living in the temple grounds or in the larger area around the temple. And um, if you know how many priests there are going to be, if you can imagine how many priests there might be serving in the kingdom time, it tells you how much sacrificing is going to be going on to provide a steady supply of food to all of these people. A lot of activity. All right, we have about too much to do in five minutes. So what I'm going to do is just get halfway into chapter 45. And there's uh, at least a couple of interesting things here that are worth bringing up before we quit. A few more minutes. Verse 40, uh, chapter 45, verse 1. He says, And when you divide by lot the land for inheritance, you shall offer an allotment to the Lord, a holy portion of the land. The length shall be the length of 25,000 cubits, and the width shall be 20,000. It shall be holy within all its boundaries round about. Out of this there shall be for the holy place a square round about 500 by 500 cubits, and 50 cubits for its open space round about. From this area you shall measure a length of 25,000 cubits and a width of 10,000 cubits, and it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, who come near to minister to the Lord. These are the ones of Zadok. And it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. An area of 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width shall be for the Levites, the, the ministers of the house, and for their possession cities to dwell in. So these are the other priests who don't get to go near the Lord. And then he says, You shall give the city possession of an area 5,000 cubits wide and 25,000 cubits long, alongside the allotment of the holy portion. It shall be for the whole house of Israel. The prince, and that's David, of course, shall have land on either side of the holy allotment and the property of the city adjacent to the holy allotment and the property of the city on the west side toward the west and on the east side toward the east. And in length, comparable to one of the portions from the west border to the east border. This shall be his land for a possession in Israel. So my princes shall no longer oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. All right, so we don't have to repeat too much here. But you notice he kind of maps it all out. Just to give you some general idea here, we're talking about an area that's about 8.3 miles by 6.6 miles. All right? And this is the Lord starting to allot the land to the members of the tribes of Israel, starting with the Levites, with the priests, both Zadok and the rest. And notice at the very beginning of the passage I read, verse 1, he says, when you divide by lot the land for inheritance. Did you catch that? So when the time comes for the people of Israel to start dividing up the land in the kingdom to know what tribe gets what areas of land, and presumably maybe within the tribe who gets what, and within the families who get what, right? that's all going to be done by lot. Lot is a way of referencing a system of dice, if you will. Right? So they're going, obviously the Lord is the one who's going to be assigning the amounts to whomever. He's going to reflect his will in the controlling of the dice so that the dice show the will of God in the outcomes. All right? Now, why didn't he just publish all that in the book? Why didn't he just say, here's what everyone gets? 
Well, I have two reasons. First, the allocation is going to be a reflection of the obedience of the various tribes. There's going to be some rationale behind God in his judgment for who gets what. It's not random. It's not equal. Right? There's going to be some assessment. And at the time the book of Ezekiel is being written, their record of obedience is not done yet. So he waits to the end so that he can show the full effect of the obedience of the tribes of Israel. Secondly, if they did know this allocation in advance, it likely would have just caused strife among the tribes in the present age to know in advance that somebody's got a hand over the other in what's coming. All right? So at that time, they're going to throw lots, and the Lord's going to tell them at that point. He says, before you do that, though, or as you do that, he says, I want to tell you right up front what the priests are getting and what David and the princes are getting. And he carves out this eight by six mile space and he divides it up, as you saw. Top third holds the temple and its uh, holy space and then the priests of Zadok live around it. Middle section is for the city of Jerusalem. We don't know much about the city except that it's the possession of all Israel. Final bottom third there is for the non-Zadok Levites. And then you have David on either side. And you notice it says that it will be of a size equal to the width of the allotment. What it's saying is he's got a 25,000 by 20,000 allotment on either side though for him and for his princes. That is for the others who lead underneath him. It could mean his senior leadership. Maybe it's a reference to the apostles and their leadership over the tribes. We're not sure. It's probably not a huge number of people, whatever it is. But the total space that we just defined for David amounts to about the size of Salt Lake City today. So the entire city of Salt Lake, if you can take that much land, if you know that city, for example, it's also about the size of Charleston, South Carolina. They're both about the same size. That land is divided among a handful of people, which indicates how richly the Lord is awarding those who serve Him well in that time. When we come back next time, we're going to look at how the offerings for the feast days are given, and there's uh, some interesting parallels, but we'll be able to move through that relatively uh, quickly and finish out this chapter and get into the next few. Given the fact that I had more tonight than I expected to have, as I looked at, you know, my mind just started doing that little bit of sidebar stuff, and I ended up with those extra, I hope that extra stuff was, was worth it. But anyway, uh, that probably kicks us out another week or two. So I think we're going to be at least, I know next week for sure, but at least probably a week after that. So it's a moving target, as it always is with me. So that's all right. Well, that's, we have the time. We might as well take advantage of it. So for those who are trying to figure out when they stop coming, I'd say you have at least two more weeks. Because I don't think I'm going to get 45, 46, 47, and 48 next week. And why would I want to anyway? That seems like a lot. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you, Father, for making the kingdom so real to us now. Uh, for all that it will do to help us uh, see this world in the proper light. And uh, we thank you, Father, that you have uh, shined your your face upon us and given us the mercy of of your grace so that we would know you by faith. And we thank you, Father, that um, we have opportunity to reign with you in a day to come. And as we learned last week, Father, pray that uh, we do pray that you give us a heart and uh, a desire to serve you well now. We don't want to miss out on the opportunities to serve you even more in the kingdom. And, Father, we thank you for this study and the continuation of it in the weeks to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.